Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Christy Weiskel. Christy is the Senior Advisor to the President of Johns Hopkins University for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. In this role, Christy serves as the Executive Director of Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures, the division of the university responsible for technology transfer, industry research partnerships, and company acceleration under the brand Fast Forward. Since her appointment in 2013, Christy has transformed the culture of commercialization at Johns Hopkins, opening 43,000 square feet of fast-forward innovation space to support startup companies, facilitating the creation of hundreds of companies and generating $330 million in university revenue from licensing and industry collaborations. Johns Hopkins University startups have raised $3 billion in venture capital during her tenure. Christy is a fierce advocate for the future of Baltimore and the role that Johns Hopkins University can play in populating the city skyline with companies born, built, and grown locally. Christy is a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, and ecosystem builder with 25 years of experience, primarily focused on the life sciences and healthcare industries. Prior to her role at Johns Hopkins, Christy co-founded two Baltimore-based startups and served as a formal and informal advisor to many others. Prior to that, Christy worked as an institutional investor where she had a long track record of successful investing in both public and private companies. Christy has a BA in economics and German from Williams College and an MBA in accounting and finance from the Stern School of Business at New York University. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thanks so much, Lisa. Happy to be here. Well, thanks so much again for taking part in the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Christy, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures? I'd be happy to. And it it is a bit of a circuitous route, uh, not the the usual route. And and I think one of my messages that I give anywhere from my children to our students to to the team here at JHTV is you've got to follow your heart. So mine is, is certainly a journey of the heart. I spent about 20 years as an institutional investor in the life sciences and medical device realm. So I was investing in companies, public and private. And I had been living in Baltimore for some time. I worked at T. Rowe Price, a a large money manager. And at some point, it occurred to me that I have been investing in companies all over the world, but I had never invested in a company in Baltimore, either public or private. And uh, after a series of events, I I was able to make some private investments. Uh, As a result of my work, I had some exits. And I I realized that maybe what I really was meant to do as far as following my heart is working with these smaller companies and building them. And so I I really left my Wall Street life behind. This is in 2010. 
and started meeting with people in and around the Baltimore ecosystem. Again, I had lived here since 1999. I'm passionate about the city. There are a lot of things that I do here locally. But I figured the best way that I could help the city and, and help um, really prosper, I'm raising my children here. I, I have my, my family, my husband's roots are here. Well, the best thing I could do is help create companies and jobs. I just felt like that was that was really a piece. And plus, bringing, of course, bringing bringing great technologies to market is is another benefit of this. And so I ended up meeting with a number of entrepreneurs with faculty who were thinking about starting companies, and not just at Hopkins, really all over. I founded a, a co-founded a women's entrepreneurial group. I helped a woman with a candy company. I mean, I was really spanning the gamut as far as thinking about companies and investing here in Baltimore. And I got uh, very seriously involved with a couple of them that, that we started as with a faculty member from scratch, licensed the technology. I did a pharma deal with one and I helped the other one through a series A round. And it was really through that process, working with the Johns Hopkins Tech Transfer Office, working with these faculty members that I saw that there might be an opportunity to optimize faculty's experience and really the experience in Baltimore, for example. There was no lab space, no affordable and flexible lab space for these companies to locate. There were no connections to the types of investors that invest in early stage uh, university research companies. There were not really any other services. When I founded these companies, I had to call in friends and say, what lawyer should I use? What accountant should I use? Or it was really everyone who started a company had to do it really de novo. And I, I just felt that there might be an opportunity to optimize that. Let's Let's think about ways to build some infrastructure to scale this opportunity. And it was really just uh, after a, a few moments of frustration of watching these young companies and these faculty members try so hard in an ecosystem where, if you think about the, the seeds, and the seeds of innovation have fallen at Johns Hopkins for decades, and yet the ground just wasn't prepared to sow those seeds into these wonderful, wonderful plants. And so, um, so I created this whole PowerPoint types white paper type PowerPoint and said, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? And this was sort of writ large what the ecosystem, particularly in the life sciences needed, because that's where my background was an investor in that in that area. And so I it was really a working document for me to think, and I shared it with a friend of mine who runs a foundation in town who cares deeply about the city. And it was that friend who introduced me to President Daniels who I had a series of, of conversations and meetings with and did some projects with over a series of months. And ultimately, he said, I really would like for you to come and help me build the ecosystem and, and do what you're trying to do. So it was really it was really born out. The, the place that I landed eight years ago, almost to the week, was really born out of, of a love for creating companies, for entrepreneurship, for helping faculty members, and for bringing this incredible science that happens here in Baltimore to the world. Yeah, that's an incredible journey. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what you and JHTV have done to uh, help develop the entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem a little bit here. But before we get to that, for those of our listeners who may not be very familiar with JHTV, can you tell us a little bit more about it? So it is the front door for faculty and students and on the other side, corporate and investment firms when it comes to doing the business of technology transfer and bringing products to market at JHTV. So we work with all nine schools from our Peabody School of Music to our School of Medicine. And the breadth of faculty is staggering. Uh, we have a, a School of Music technology working on guitars. 
to and through gray cancer diagnostics and everything in between. About three quarters of our activity, though, is in the life sciences. The distinct groups that we have created are corporate partnerships. We'll talk some more about that in a moment, I hope. Uh, technology transfer. And then fast forward, which is our home for startups that includes startup space and startup resources. Yeah. And I mean, you're obviously very passionate, Christy, about what you do. What do you find most exciting about this position at JHTV? Uh, look, I think I have the, the, the greatest job in the world, maybe second to Ted Lasso. But you know, <laughs> I, I, I just I, I absolutely love the idea of every day is something new. I get to meet with some of the most brilliant and passionate people in the world that care deeply about their science, their work and, and ultimate impact. When you think about what folks are doing in the lab, it's they discover new things. They're they're in every way trying to make the world a better place. And we're just trying to provide that bridge from the lab to the market. Yeah. And as I mentioned, both you and JHTV, you've been instrumental in helping to develop the entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem there in Baltimore. Can you talk a little bit about this development and growth as well as some of the programs and other activities you and JHTV have been involved in to help develop this ecosystem? Absolutely. And let's let's take it back to 2013 when I started. We had a committee of faculty and students. I think there were about 30 of us. It was chaired by two entrepreneurial faculty members. And we went around the country and we looked at great university ecosystems. And then we came up and really held a mirror at ourselves and said, what do we have and what do we need? And it was through that report that was born out. And by the way, that report is available on our website, ventures.jhu.edu. So feel free to, to look that up. Um, it's, a, it's a long report, but there's a, there's a nice executive summary up front. And it really talked about what was needed. So what we have tried to do, there were a set of 20 plus recommendations that we have systematically tried to put in place. The first of those is Fast Forward that I mentioned, one of our three divisions at JHTV. This is a coordinated suite of resources designed to try to move technologies efficiently into a startup and, and hopefully to the market. This past year, we had 18 new companies that were uh, started and part of Fast Forward. And it was a really a banner year for funding. Uh, our companies that were started out of JHTV raised a little over $700 million. And in addition to that, there was about $500 million of public equity funding. So a total of $1.2 billion of venture funding coming into our company. So we have a dedicated person in Fast Forward, for example, who works with our companies and the space and, and all that they would need all the way down to the, to the various parts of the lab. We also have a dedicated person who meets with early stage venture firms and says, hey, would you like to meet faculty and companies coming out of Johns Hopkins? And then there's a whole array. We're part of i and, and very firmly believe in the education that that firm provides. So that's really our home for startups. Another part, you asked specifically about kind of what we've done to build the ecosystem a few years ago, we stood up a distinctly student-facing effort that we call Fast Forward U. So that's the student hub for entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, we have a, a fantastic leader, Josh Ambrose, who runs that effort and, and works with Brian Stansky, who runs all of Fast Forward, also like me, a veteran of, of T. Rowe Price. On the student effort, we have physical space that includes makerspace in partnership with our engineering school. We have a, a number of different programs uh, some of those provide funding. Um, some of those provide acceleration and connections to mentors um, and, and the like. And so with our students, we like to say that we are covering the waterfront from the curious to the create to the to the committed, curious to the committed. And everywhere in that, we want 
folks to be part of this. If you think about the types of students from the youngest undergrad to the, to the most seasoned PhD student, they're likely to start something in their life. It might be a lab. It might be a business. It might be a political campaign. It might be a school. But we want to give them the confidence because the skills that you need to start any of those things or a company are similar. You have to build a team and raise money and have a, a vision. And, and so we're, we're proud to help the students in that. Another aspect that, that I think President Daniels in particular is very proud of is our Social Innovation Lab. This is a program that every year selects in the fall 10 teams to go through a rigorous accelerator program. It's run by a, a, a wonderful leader named Madison Marks. And Madison takes these teams through everything they would need to really build these not-for-profit or mission-driven businesses. Some of those are Hopkins affiliated and some of those are from the community. So the Social Innovation Lab um, is, is a, wonderful, um, a wonderful way to really incubate and have help to scale social businesses. Uh, the last um, the last thing I'll, I'll talk about, and then there, there are lots of other pieces of, of JHTV, but the last that might be of interest to your listeners is the Commercialization Academy. And we really learned a lot from Columbia University here. They wrote a wonderful Nature Biotech article on how to get students involved, uh, which can really is, is extremely symbiotic in the way it works. The students learn about technology transfer, about marketing, about commercialization. They look at the technologies that come in. We have uh, over 400 new uh, reports of invention per year. So high volume, we're usually in the top 10, if not the top five, in terms of just pure volume coming at us. And so the students help analyze those. And on our end, we have really smart, really dedicated people that help us sift through that because we have a, a nimble team. There's no way we could, uh, with every one of those 400 plus, spend the amount of time that's needed. So our students really help with that. So that is a highly competitive program. Um, it provides students with a two-year paid fellowship. They work approximately eight to 10 hours a week and then uh, more over the summer, full-time sometimes over the summer. Um, and it really comes from a variety of academic programs and, and really proud of, of building that. And we've had, um, we've had a lot of success with getting our students involved. Yeah, I do have to say the programs you have are extremely impressive and just everything that they're churning out and doing is, is really, really amazing. I did want to turn back for a second here, Christy, and ask you about JHTV. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it and how actually it's structured? Sure. So, um, so there are three groups within JHTV, and, and I think particularly the one that I haven't talked a lot about yet is tech transfer. So we, we, can, um, we can spend some time on that. I know that might be of interest. And by the way, with, with all of these, Lisa, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And so we, on my team, we throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall. And we build and we iterate and sometimes things don't work and we admit failure and move on and pivot and start over. And all the great buzzwords you hear, we really try to inculcate that into our own culture. We believe very firmly, for example, with our entrepreneurs and our, our faculty and innovators in customer discovery. We believe that one should go out and ask questions as the i model has, has trained us is there a need for this in the market? We try to do the same with ourselves. We try to be extremely customer-centric and, and the sort of the, the two different pieces of the customer are students and faculty on one hand and our corporate and, and investment uh, stakeholders on the other. So within JHTV, we have the largest of our groups is technology transfer itself. As I mentioned, we have over 400 um, reports of invention per year. I think in the fiscal year just closed in June of 21. I think we were at 440 
uh, new reports of invention. Um, our licensing revenue was uh, just a touch under 40 million. And when I started, that number was 15 million. Oh, wow. The metrics, yeah, the metrics that are traditionally used, of course, as, as this audience knows in the world of uh, autumn and tech transfer is licensing revenue. Um, I have some thoughts about data collection and, and what we could on a forward looking way as an industry be be calculating. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to talk to you more about that. But on the licensing front, I'm, our three-year rolling average is more than twice what we were before JHTV was created. So very proud on the licensing front and some of the, the successes that we've had that, um, that really played into that. Uh, we have a number of uh, attorneys that help us from patent attorneys to folks in the licensing realm, some of whom have law degrees, some of whom have PhDs. Um, we have a business analyst team that focuses on some of the highest prospects of commercialization technologies. So um, technologies that we think are close to um, potentially review by investment firms or might have outsized impact. We have a, a team that really projects manages project manages those towards those meetings with corporate and investors. This is what I call the fully baked cake phenomenon in tech transfer. There's a lot of of really high-grade raw ingredients at so many of these offices. There's the, the most uh, delicious butter. There is the, the best kind of flour and the, the greatest chocolate that one would need to make a cake. What investors often want, though, and what, what our corporate partners often want is more of a fully baked cake. Yeah, we have a cold oven. We haven't mixed the ingredients. So who's going to mix those? What's going to happen? Uh, I think uh, needing that entrepreneurial talent to work hand in glove with our faculty is, is a big need that, that we can talk about in a moment. But having at least the business analysts who are thinking about how to bake the cake, what's the recipe, what's the oven temperature, not to overplay the, uh, the metaphor here, um, you know, I, I think is, 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 really, is really key. We also have a, a medical director who works with us for a portion of his time who has an MD-PhD and as also an experienced entrepreneur. So that's very helpful. We have a number of mentors in residence, folks in the community or alums who are exited entrepreneurs who can help our staff. So a number of these pieces. And again, all of these things were, were try and fail method, right? This was, we, we looked at what other offices were doing that was working well. We spoke to them. Everyone in the industry was very, very generous. I want to call out you know, a number of folks at Columbia, at MIT, at WashU, at Duke, at um, in Atlanta. At uh, Atlanta has a really lovely ecosystem with a number of universities participating. A lot of people were helpful in us thinking about how to do this. But um, but at the end of the day, we really um, we're really just trying to address what we see as the need of taking this great science and and bringing it to the market. Now, Christy, you mentioned some data, some metrics. You talked about reports of invention, licensing revenue. Um, I wanted to know if there were some other metrics you wanted to mention about uh, things that JHTV has accomplished. And then I wanted to go back to uh, a point you raised earlier about your thoughts on data collection as well. Absolutely. You know, I, this is something that I can talk about forever. I'm a, I'm a spreadsheet person at heart. <clears throat> I was lamenting to a friend recently that, that I'm not very good at marketing and uh, it's just not how I was trained. I'm an, I was an economics major. I went to business school. I'm, I'm a numbers person. And the, uh, my friend said, it's okay, Christy, just lead with results and marketing works out. So I, I've, I've tried to take some, um, some peace from that. 
but yes, at the heart of it, I, I like numbers. I like to think about it. And there's a, a member of our team, uh, Brian Stansky, who reminds us all the time, people behave as they are measured. And if you are measured by the number of patents that you are issued, or if you are measured by the number of articles you publish, or if you were measured by whatever the number is, people will orient themselves towards that measure. And so I'm extremely careful how we talk to the team about uh, these metrics. Ultimately, the measure, I think, for tech transfer writ large is impact. So how much impact for the good of the world can you have, whether that's a new type of energy that helps to save the planet, whether that's a test for cancer that helps save innumerable lives. There are many ways to measure that impact, but that is first and foremost. And, and that's hard to put, um, it's hard to put a specific number on, but certainly that is top of mind when I think about this, but particularly with specific metrics. So yes, we can talk about our, our 400 plus reports of invention. We had over 150 new US patents issued last year. We have nearly 3,500 active patents. Um, our incredible contracts team processed more than 5,000 material transfer agreements. Just think about that for a second. And there's such a nimble team. There are only, I think, five or six people. So, I mean, the math there is incredible as far as their throughput. Um, nearly 400 non-disclosure agreements. And as I mentioned, just shy of 40 million in licensing revenue. What I would advocate, though, and I'm, I've been very seriously thinking about this, is when one can attract outside funding to a technology, then you know there's something there. I think that's a good, and yes, I do come from the investment world, and so I have a bias here. But I think even um, John Sodestrom, who was for, for many decades headed the Yale Tech Transfer Office and in some ways was is the father of a lot of thought around tech transfer, one thing I learned from him is it, it doesn't count as, as a real startup until there's outside money that changes hands. It doesn't count if it's your uncle or you, if it is it there an outside venture firm that, that changes hands. So I would advocate that as an industry, we should start very uh, strategically and methodically calculating, um, or, or I should say intentionally and methodically calculating the venture funding that comes into autumn startups. We have done that now for eight years at Johns Hopkins. And so we have the numbers and I'll talk about those in a moment. I think for any office that is really looking at whether or not the technology is, is being transferred, whether you're creating jobs, then there are other ways that we also, by the way, collect very serious job data. Now you may ask, how do you do this? We don't have someone in, do you have someone in your office? Well, for starters, we put it in the license and we explain when we're um, licensing as technologies to our companies. And, and really, this is about startups. We don't, we don't, if we license something to a large pharma company, we're, we're not asking how many jobs are created. So, but for our, for our autumn startups, in the license, we explain that we have a number of stakeholders and our stakeholders ask us to report dollars raised and jobs. And, and there are some other details in there, but those are the, those are the two big ones. We also agree to keep it confidential. So we report aggregate numbers. Sometimes companies don't put out press releases when they raise money and they're sensitive to that and we understand that. But but I would advocate for all of the heads of tech transfer offices that are listening today, let's go to Autumn and uh, all agree to adopt a standard. And that is if you are an Autumn startup, and even if it's five years after the company was created, if it was started based on technology out of your office, then count the dollars. Now, some may say, well, it was started from our technology plus another university's technology. Fine, you can double count it. 
doesn't matter. The point is, is the technology attracting true outside thoughtful capital in order to bring this product forward? So the reason I think that's important is that you are, you're really measuring whether or not you are connecting faculty with the right investors, whether you are serving the stakeholders of the venture community well by being a good facilitator. I want to be known, I want JHT be known to be known as a place where investors want to come, where they want to do 10 deals. I was having a conversation with a friend last week who runs a large healthcare related fund. And I think he was a bit sensitive. There's a particular deal and you know he's, he's worried about some of the mechanics and whether or not it would upset me. And I said, first of all, you're an investor. You have to do what's right for the company and the product ultimately. Second, what I what I want to do is 10 more deals with you. I'm not worried about whether I'm going to maximize X, Y, or Z on this deal. What I what I want is for you to keep coming back and say, wow, your office, it was a pleasure to work with you all. You are industry savvy. You understand what investors need. And investors understand that that tech transfer offices have missions. Yes, of course, if there is upside, we want to participate in the upside, but we don't want to get in the way of that upside. So that's that's where I stand on on metrics, and I hope that we can galvanize the the autumn and tech transfer community to really be thoughtful about that metric. I think that's an excellent idea, and I'm hopeful that you'll be able to galvanize that community to do exactly that because I I think that's uh, very insightful, and and I think it would be extremely helpful. Uh, Christy, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you what do you think is most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success? Well, I think there are. A lot of things, one of the things is really helping faculty understand that the types of innovations that may work well in a science or nature or cell article are different than the types of communication and presentations that one makes to the entrepreneur or the investor. So bridging that divide, we spend a lot of time on what we call the seven questions. Also on our website, it was developed over a number of years, and it really tries to hone in on the commercial applicability of a given asset. So we do a lot of coaching. We, we really don't want our faculty to walk in blind to a conversation with a, a venture firm. Uh, we want them to understand what the goals of the venture firm are, how that venture firm invests, what type of presentation would resonate. We also have, and again, all of this is on our website. I hope that people will use it. Um, we, we often use things from other tech transfer websites that work very well. Stanford had a wonderful annual report a few years ago and a startup guide that, that were particularly uh, great that, that we studied and, and learned from. But in this case, we have a presentation guide. We talk about what one should have in a presentation to industry. So I think, I think one of the keys to this is communication. When I hear a scientific presentation, uh, it is very different than an investment deck. And in fact, there, there's a, there, I think faculty like to use the word slides. And investors like to use the word deck. So even just the name of what you're doing is different, which seems kind of silly. Um, There's another disconnect. At at one point, um, there was a venture firm that was so interested in technology that they asked the the team to fly up to Boston and present it. Now, faculty are used to, if if they're being asked to do things, that that someone would maybe pay for those expenses of travel. And so the the faculty member came to, to me and said, well, to, to whom do, do I submit my travel? And I said, no, 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 no. That's your plan. You're buying that plane ticket. You're lucky to get for every thousand deals that a venture firm reviews, they might do due diligence on 10 and invest in three. So you're trying to be one of the three of one of the thousand. 
This is not about you getting reimbursed for your plane ticket to Boston. So it's just a very different world uh, where the the venture firms and and faculty. So I think the the greatest value that I personally can bring is just trying to bridge that communication divide. Now, Christy, a little bit earlier, we briefly mentioned corporate partners, and I wanted to go back to that concept now and and talk a little bit about corporate partners and the role they've played in tech transfer at JHTU. Can you give us some examples of some of the relationships you have with corporate partners? I, I know you have some really great and strong ones there. Yes, and, and this was a group that President Daniels, who who is my boss, really thought would be a good idea to think about what these companies are thinking of. What what is their mission? What is our mission, and how might those align? And if you think about the macro changes in big pharma over the last decade or two, they went from being a place where a lot of great chemistry was done. Uh, some great science was done. There was a, some small molecule development, some uh, protein-based drug development. And a lot of times that happened inside the pharmaceutical company. What they were particularly good at was once the science was to a certain point, that commercialization path, the, that initial clinical trial through phase three, making sure that regulatory and reimbursement pieces were, were all in place. That's what pharma does well. What we've discovered over the last, again, decade or so is that pharma strength is not particularly the basic sciences. In fact, if you look at the merger activity, they often uh, will acquire the companies that are in the basic science realm that are translating those products to market. There are a number of, of uh, very big deals. Um, Juno comes to mind. Um, the drug Sovaldi, of course, uh, came from a great acquisition by uh, Gilead. So there, there are some really good examples of basic science happening at young companies where big pharma can apply their skills. So what are we good at as a university? We're really best in class, best in the world, places like Johns Hopkins at basic science research. We're not necessarily excellent at, at commercialization. We don't, we, yes, we do clinical trials, but we don't necessarily have all of the things that are needed to go into, for example, an IND or in the device space, an IDE. We don't, we don't necessarily have the infrastructure to do that. We need to partner with the outside world. In fact, we don't make or sell drugs here at Johns Hopkins, right? So if we wanna take this great science to market, we have to work with pharma. So I think pharma realizing, and some particularly enlightened pharma companies and R&D heads like those at AbbVie and Bayer realized that they could work with our basic scientists, get the, get the idea, the, the idea for a therapeutic to a certain stage, and then they could really be off to the races on the commercialization front. So our, our, our buyer relationship, for example, that spans many, many years, and again, we have a wonderful partnership with the leadership there, is focused on uh, debilitating eye disease. And what can we do? So they're, they're working with some of our faculty members at the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. They're funding some basic research. And then they're, they have an option, if that looks like it's going to head into human clinical trials, to, uh, to option that technology to be the commercial partner for that. So it's, it's actually a great relationship because our faculty who are, who are toiling in the science want their science to ultimately see the light of day in terms of products. And pharma companies need to, of course, bolster their pipeline. All these, these patent clips are devastating for, um, for their metrics, which often for the CEO is the stock price, right, and, and the earnings. And so, uh, so it, it really works well. And so we have developed a number of really good relationships with pharma and 
um, and, and even medical device companies who, who understand that the mutual goals here are, are what it's all about. Now, would you say having these corporate partners has led to more deals or would you say perhaps differently structured deals? Sure. Well, we have always done corporate sponsored research. We like, uh, like many fabulous academic medical centers and research universities. Often that was a one-off relationship with a faculty member and someone at a company. So it might be a couple hundred thousand dollars here or there. What we've tried to do is have that conversation again, back to that front door for the company, have a conversation at a, at a high and strategic level and say, what all are you interested in? Because often they want public health folks um, to, to be part of the conversation or data scientists to be in the conversation, clinical trialists along with those scientists. And, or maybe they're interested in different therapeutic areas. They want to do neuro and ophthalmology. And so we're able to really structure a deal at a higher level um, to help them think about how to work with Hopkins in a seamless way. In a large place like Johns Hopkins, obviously a lot goes into any particular uh, relationship or um, research uh, transaction, but making that as seamless as possible so that these uh, companies want to work again with us over and over, back to my theme about long-term relationships, that's what uh, that's what we try to do. So we really started from scratch with just a single person seven years ago, and that group I think now is 10 people that really focuses not only on cultivating the relationships, but managing as they work. So continuing that communication, uh, potential communication gap between the company and the lab to, to have mutually agreeable goals about where the research needs to go. Now, what about relationships with philanthropic organizations? Do you have many of those? Yes, I'll give you one example that has been uh, absolutely game-changing. And, and there are, there are uh, hundreds of these for, for the one that I speak of. But um, the Lust Garden Foundation, for example, is very focused on pancreatic cancer research. And, and they have funded for, um, for many years the lab of uh, Dr. Bert Vogelstein and colleagues. That's a, it's a very prolific lab. They do a lot of cancer and uh, genetic research. And they were incredibly generous with funding or some technology around whether one can better use radiology images like CT scans when a computer helps with those images. So using AI to really understand if there's a better way than the human eye to diagnose early stage disease. And it turns out that the work that they funded, which is one of the things I'm most excited about, it's not yet licensed, it's not yet in a company but it's a project where it's uh, it's what I call our Kasparov moment. It's it's the moment where we actually found that the algorithms we developed from these amazing machine learning and, and AI computer scientists at our engineering school and, and our school of arts and sciences, along with our uh, incredible team of oncology clinicians and one of the one of the most uh, well known and um, and well regarded radiologists in the world, Elliot Fishman. Um, when they figured out that this algorithm could actually diagnose as well or better than a human. So pancreatic cancer, as you probably know, Lisa, is uh, it's a death sentence. It's horrible. Yeah, it's usually stage four. You're usually given months to live. And so if there's any way, I mean, we have great screening technology for so many other cancers now, for, for breast, for colon, for cervical cancer. Could there be a way to diagnose pancreatic cancer earlier. And so that's that's one of the things that, that we're focused on. So that's just an example of, of the ingenuity and 
thoughtfulness of the Lust Garden Foundation in combination with some of our scientists. And we're all interested in what the commercial product is here. And, and so more to come, hopefully, in, in future uh, in future talks. Yeah, that's uh, that's a fantastic example. And, and actually, switching gears and talking about success, I, I wanted to ask you if you could describe for us some of JHTV's biggest success stories in terms of technology, startups, anything you'd like to talk about. Sure. Well, there are there are many. We've had a, a really incredible run. I'll, I'll just tell one story. This is also out of one of the one of the most prolific labs that I that I spoke of. Uh, Doctors Vogelstein, Kinsler, and Papadopoulos had an idea about diagnosing cancer at a much earlier stage from blood. And this is something that that the Vogelstein lab has worked on for decades. But Bert Vogelstein himself likes to say that cancer develops over decades, not overnight. And so the sooner with, with really a pan-cancer look, um, any cancer that you can diagnose earlier, the patient is much better off. And, and so they had for years done the seminal work in cancer genetics. They spent um, a lot of time thinking about what such a test would look like and had some really interesting innovations of technology that we patented over time. One of the, um, one of the seminal uh, patents and uh, scientific papers was on a technology called Cancer Seek, and in fact, I remember the day that that paper was published because we got, I think, a dozen unsolicited calls from from licensees. Now, that's uh, my friends in tech transfer know it's pretty rare to have a day where something is is published and and you have multiple uh, lines on the dance card hoping to 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 really be part of that license. So that was a very interesting technology. That was ultimately licensed to a company that was created along with Third Rock and some other very high caliber investors called Thrive Cancer Detect. Um, they did a $110 million A round with Thrive. Um, they, they really helped put in place the, the strategy around the regulatory and reimbursement process, as we talked about, that was so critical. They, um, Bert, with some generous philanthropic funding from Lust Garden and others, had already done some clinical trial work, so it had been significantly de-risked. Um, and that that company went on to raise another venture round, which I believe was just over two hundred and fifty million. And less than six months after that B round was acquired for a little over two billion dollars from Exact Sciences, which of course is is the leader in early cancer diagnosis. So it was it's just a really wonderful story. But most importantly, because this test, I believe, in our lifetimes, shortly even could be the same as going to the doctor and get your cholesterol tested. So just as one has their cholesterol tested every couple of years, this is something that I think could be a blood test that could um, that could directly point out whether one has cancer. And so I'm really enthusiastic about the commercial implications, and I'm thrilled for the investors and um, and the inventors and the fact that this was such a successful exit across the board. Yeah, that's another fantastic example. And Christy, along with great success also comes challenges. So I'd be curious what you think two of JHTV's biggest challenges are. Well, certainly one is the fact that we have far more interesting pieces of technology than we have entrepreneurs to, to refine that, to bake the cake, as we, as we spoke about earlier. And that is a challenge. In Baltimore, we are building a burgeoning ecosystem. We have even the, the company I just spoke about, Thrive, um, is continues to add um, continues to add uh, jobs here in Baltimore, and, and we're thrilled to, to work with them on that. But for every technology like CancerSeek, there are literally 
hundreds of technologies that um, that lay fallow. And so how can we move those ahead? If you were to say, Lisa, okay, Christy, I can hand you a hundred entrepreneurs who have the energy and talents to take these technology forward, I would say, I'll take a hundred and can I have a hundred more? So so that is um, that is just a continual challenge. I think the second big thing is that due to the success of so many of these companies in Baltimore in the 44,000 square foot square feet of space that we've built for affordable and flexible lab and office for these very young companies, we now have companies scaling. They now need 10,000, 20,000 uh, more square feet in order to build out their lab, build out their manufacturing. And we just don't have that on a commercial basis here in Baltimore. And so I would, um, if I could snap my fingers, I would say more entrepreneurs to, to meet those challenges and more scalable lab space for these young companies as they grow. Christy, you've been a very strong advocate for women and other traditionally underrepresented groups in the startup space. You once said that, remember, female founders, it's what you do in the dark that puts you in the light. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by this quote and what can be done to facilitate more women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and startup founders and also, can you tell us what JHTV is doing in this regard? Sure. So as, as the listeners may know, only 2% of venture capital nationally goes to women and less than 1% goes to people of color. And we know that that does not represent the aggregate talent in the space. So as, as frothy and as, as vibrant as the life sciences venture markets are today, we still have not addressed a key issue, which is the way female founders and people of color are funded. And it continues to, uh, it continues to be a problem. And this is an absolute passion of mine. I mentioned earlier, I started a a group for women entrepreneurs. And so the team came together a couple of years ago to try, try to take this head on. And, and one of the things we found is that having mentors and knowing that you're part of a community is key. So we, um, it was actually right at the start of the pandemic, we founded a series of year-long events to connect our more seasoned female innovators with our younger faculty and students. And that, that really grew. Uh, we actually have a website now where we highlight a number of uh, female inventors. That was a series of programming and very well attended. And, and I think people really enjoyed it. And so I think just like so much of life, seeing that you can do that and seeing that you can be that and knowing that you're not alone is, is a key part of it. For that particular quote, there was uh, for the last Olympics, not the, not the 2020-2021 Tokyo Olympics, but for the last Olympics, there were some wonderful commercials by Under Armour, of course, a, a big Baltimore company, um, that showed uh, Michael Phelps swimming in the dark at 4 or 5 a.m. to start his training. And then there was another wonderful commercial of the U.S. gymnastics team training, uh, walking into the facility in the dark of night um, in the early hours of the morning to, to begin their training routine. And I just remember feeling, um, especially when I started this work at Johns Hopkins, I had meetings all day. It was it was a it was really power packed with faculty, with invent, investors, with other stakeholders. And the only time that I could get anything done was kind of four to seven a.m. I also have uh, kids; they're teenagers now, but at the time, you know, had to get them ready for school and 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 everything else that that goes with being a parent. Um, and so uh, there was something about waking up in the dark, getting the work done, making sure that it happened. That when I saw those commercials, it, it just 
it dawned on me that so much of what we do, especially something you're passionate about, that's transcendent, but there's intense pressure on whether it's a, a high performance athlete or, or someone in business. Um, it is ultimately what you do in the dark that puts you on that metal stand or helps you uh, get a billion dollars worth of funding into those companies. And so I, I just want to, um, I just want to encourage women across the board, not just at Johns Hopkins that are innovating and, and thinking of starting companies that they are not alone, that ultimately all of that work they're putting in at, at the wee hours before the kids wake up and after they go to bed and, and everything in between that, that ultimately that bill will be rewarded. But the most important thing is that you see yourself there, that you, that you really do see yourself in that role, that you are enough. And, um, it's not imposter syndrome, but you are the right person to be doing that at this time. That's great advice. Thank you. So switching gears again, Christy, I wanted to ask you what organizations, things like Autumn, LES, that you and your colleagues there at JHTV are involved in and what value you think they add. Yeah, so a number of our technology transfer professionals are involved. I know with LES, with Autumn, it is a wonderful, those are both wonderful training organizations and just really do encourage all sorts of professional development even on our team, we take two full days a year uh, off to do an off-site training for the entire organization. So that not only allows folks to interact with team members in a different setting, but we usually have a, a, a topic that, that we want to address. Um, and so I, I really think these organizations are important. Um, I'm not as involved with Autumn as I would like to be, although I'm very particular, I'm very interested in this metrics question. And so I'm thinking more about um, how to get involved and, and how I should be involved. There are um, a number of the large offices in the country that convene from time to time to share best practices, and that has been very helpful. Um, but a lot of what I'm involved in is with in the local Baltimore ecosystem. That's kind of the, I, I say we have two missions at JHTV. One is to bring great products from the labs and dorm rooms of Johns Hopkins to market. And the second is to build the Baltimore ecosystem. So for example, I'm on uh, several local economic development boards here. Um, the latest of which called Upsurge Baltimore is all about supporting entrepreneurs across the board um, in a very equitable way and I'm very proud of the work that we're doing there. I, I guess that you can never really get the entrepreneur out of me. No, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, I'm always starting something new. So anyway, that's um, those are the mostly the types of organizations I spend are, are less tech transfer where I think that the team does a wonderful job and more uh, locally focused. Christy, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for JHTV, what would that be? Sure. Well, I think we've, uh, on. Uh, look, the three wishes for me are easy. We've already talked about some of them, but one is let's get more lab space for these companies to grow. The second is any entrepreneur that wants to work with our companies. And if you're listening, please reach out to me directly. My email is on our website. Um, and I think the third, uh, I mean, look, if, if the genie's granting wishes, can I just have a few more hours in the day to, to get... <laughs> you and me both. I think we should inquire as to whether or not we can get that last wish. <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Christy, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. There are a couple of places. First of all, you can email me. It's my last name. My skill, W-Y-S-K-I-E-L at J-H-U dot E-D-U. I'm also on Twitter, C-Y-Skill. 
Our website has a number of places you can go and, and get in touch with us. So would encourage that and uh, always delighted to hear from folks. Well, great. Thank you so much again, Christy. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.